Hi, my name's Roxana Ellis, and we've been at the Bible Chapel for about 25 years. I've been a part of a choir since I was a kid, and so the other churches I've been into have had a choir, and then when uh, Kirk decided to have a choir, I was thrilled to death, so first day. It, it's fun. It's fun, and you know, and after a while, you hear us all come together, and it's amazing, and quite, the choir's been a blessing. Um, I'm unstable on steps, and so they help me up and down stairs, and they're always saying, do you need anything? You know, what can we do? Each person's different. They have a little bit to give. Like the puzzle pieces, and that's community, yeah. You know, someone has well said, there is nothing that works quite like the church when the church is working right. And you've just seen another story of a time when the church has worked right, when, when needs are, are met and people are cared for and involvement in ministry <clears throat> is a positive and a productive experience. And it's amazing the things that we can do uh, together. Uh, the, uh, the Beyond These Walls is um, uh, a capital campaign that we, that we started several years ago, and really it's become a mantra here at the church. We want to get beyond our walls and reach out into the community and the nation and the world. And one of the groups that we've been involved with for a long time is the Pregnancy Resource Center. Online for Life, headquartered in Dallas, has now come and uh, doing a lot with the Pregnancy Resource Center. A while back, about four and a half months ago, we gave... Uh, $25,000 uh, to the PRC in order to help buy a mobile unit. And that unit is able to go to different parts of the city. And the music was cool there too. Uh, different parts of the city. And, uh, and uh, the cool thing is that uh, PRC tracks all this. And because of the money we gave and other people, uh, they know that 20 babies... Uh, from, the, from some of the hardest and most determined to abort women, 20 babies have been saved in the last four and a half months. We think that's pretty cool. <clears throat> it, it, again, it's amazing what we can do together. We're thankful for our worship here and we're thankful for Andrew uh, in Washington and we're thankful for Rick uh, leading in Robinson today. Uh, Kirk, who normally leads in the South Hills, led in Wilkinsburg. And Ted Mitchell, who normally leads in Wilkesburg, was leading us today. And let's just thank all of our worship leaders. One of the things we talk about is being one church in many locations. And that's easy to say, and it's easy to put on our bulletin. But we're trying to do some things, uh, preaching and streaming from other locations, rather than just the South Hills mixing our, our worship leaders up some, we do truly want to be that one church in many locations. Because we know when the, when the church is working right, it is impacting the lives of people. We, we know that when the church is working right and when you're involved in the body of Christ, when you have trusted in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and he brings you in, he grafts you in to this body called the church, it is, the, it is the most joyful, fulfilling, and meaningful experience you'll ever have. 
as we come together because of who Jesus Christ is and we sing songs about Christ and we lift our voices to Christ. We know that he died for our sins. He did for us what we can't do for ourselves. He has brought us to himself and he has brought us to each other. And regardless of age or stage or race or rank, we can come together and we are one at the foot of the cross. And he's put us on a mission together. He's given us significant things to do together, like the PRC things. Uh, things to, to develop followers of Christ, to take his message to a world desperately needing to see what it looks like to follow hard after Jesus Christ. And we want to take that message to as many people as possible. That's why we have not only a campus here in the South Hills, but one in Robinson and one in Washington and one in Wilkinsburg and praying to see where God would lead us next. That's why we have ministries that reach into our country and throughout the world. We want to teach our children what it means to trust in Christ from an early age. We want to, we want to teach them what it means to serve as we ex, uh, show, uh, be an example of that, as we are an example of that, to come together, to be together, to worship together. There's nothing as meaningful and enjoying and fulfilling as the church. And there's nothing more frustrating and irritating and disappointing as a church. The church can be the messiest place on the planet. Because saved by God's grace, we're all still in process, right? We're all still a bunch of sinners. We are people working through the baggage that Jesus saved us from. We are people working through the brokenness that Christ is putting back together. We're still people trying to figure out who we really are in Christ and what that means, that spiritual identity. Some people are brand new believers and like little children trying to figure out those next steps and like little children making some messes along the way. Other people have been believers for a long time but have never matured. And still there are others who by the Spirit's power are seeing growth from day to day. But let's face it, for all of us, some days we are allowing the Spirit to control us more than others, right? The church can be one of the messiest places on the planet. And until we come to grips with that, until we come to grips that there is no perfection here. That we are sinners trying to do this thing together. Until we come to grips with that, we will always be disappointed. And we will be disillusioned by the church. And all of us could name a handful of people today who you know there was a time in their life when they were very involved they are nowhere to be found today. They're at home watching all the pre-NFL shows. They're off on a golf course. They're out for brunch. But they're no longer with the body of believers. And we have to be realistic enough and honest enough to deal with the messiness of the church.
Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, uh, said it like this. Listen to what he has to say. Innumerable times, this is from a book called Life Together, about community. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God's desire to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great delusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its happy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. I'm going to say that again. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusions when it should be shattered, permanently loses the moment, at that moment, the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Now listen to what he says. He who loves the dream of Christian community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest, essential, and sacrificial. Think about that. He who loves the dream of Christian community, the dream more than the reality, destroys not only the dream, but also the reality of Christian community. What we want to do today and what we want to do through this series is to speak very openly and honestly about the church, our church local and the church worldwide, little c and big c. And today we want to tackle this this reality of the church. So take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Every New Testament church had its issues as we see as we go through the series And every church today has its issues. The church in Corinth led the pack when it came to issues. Real quick, let me set the context while you're finding 1 Corinthians. The apostle Paul founded the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Now, when we do multi-site campuses, we always have a launch team that gets together and prays together and a gifted group of individuals before we go out to a different site. Think about having Paul on your launch team. Can you think of anyone else you'd rather have on your launch team besides the Apostle Paul? He's the one who founded the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. He walked into Corinth and he found a city that economically was thriving. Corinth sets right above an isthmus of Corinth. And uh, they had ships coming in from Spain and Italy from the west and, and from, um, from Egypt and Asia Minor from the east. And, and, and people would go there and, and they would cross this isthmus of Corinth. Travelers and traders would all end up in Corinth. Today there's a canal there that the sh- ships can go through. But back then there was a road called the Diocles. 
And that road was a paved road that went across and small ships could be carried across the isthmus from the, from the Adriatic Sea to the Aegean or the Aegean to the Adriatic, could be carried across that. And larger ships, their cargo could be unloaded and transported on wagons. So here was a, here was a city that had economic wealth, a thriving city. Also had, a, had 12 different temples to 12 different gods. Right in the middle of the city was the temple of Apollo. And you can still see the ruins of that city today. If you go into the museum of Corinth, you can actually see the, the lentil or the, or the cross beam over the front door of the synagogue in Corinth. It says uh, synagogue of the Hebrews, still printed on it, probably from the time of Paul. Also, Paul would have noted that immorality was rampant in Corinth. On the, one of the temples set up on every city, most every city in that day had, had their Acropolis or their high city. And the high city of, of Corinth was called the uh, uh, Acro-Corinth. There it is on the hillside. You can see it. Uh, people would go up there for sometimes defensive reasons, but you can't see it. But on one side of the Acro-Corinth was the temple to um, a god of Aphrodite. And that temple sponsored at one time a thousand prostitutes in the name of religion. It said that when the sailors would come into the, into the ports, you could just see a line of prostitutes making their way down to meet the sailors. The, the word Corinth actually was coined when you said to Corinthize, that, that meant to practice sexual immorality. When, when Plato referred to a prostitute, he used the word Corinthian girl. And in the Greek theater, when they wanted to show a drunk, they showed a man in a Corinthian hat. That's the environment that Paul went in. Paul stayed there for 18 months, right there in Corinth. He was a leather maker or a tent maker. Every Jewish boy had a trade, and that was his trade. And so he, he met up with two other believers who were already there, Aquila and Priscilla, also tent makers, and uh, Corinth had had these games called the Isthmus Games, second only to the games in Olympia. And so people would come in every couple of years. Paul being there a year and a half probably went to the games. In fact, in his writings, he uses in Corinth, uh, his letter to the Corinthians, he uses a lot of uh, athletic metaphors. And the people coming into the games would use these tents. So Paul probably had a thriving business while he was a tent maker in Corinth. Also, some of the sailors that didn't want to stay in the expensive inns would, would stay in these tents. Again, Paul was there using his trade as he shared the gospel in the city. There for 18 months, he goes back to Jerusalem on his third missionary journey. He's now up in Ephesus. He stays in Ephesus for two and a half years. And while he is in Ephesus, some people from Corinth make the trip all the way over to Ephesus to tell him, Paul, you got to help us out. We are in trouble. You have to address some things in the church. Now, I want to stop there and show you something. Over here is Corinth in Greece. Paul's over here in Ephesus as a long distance. You didn't hop on an airplane. You didn't drive a car. You had to walk a long distance to get down to Athens. And then from Athens, you had to take a boat over. And so there were people from the church in Corinth who loved the church so much, 
who were so committed to the church. They were willing to risk their life. They were willing to spend time. They were willing to go on this long journey to make sure that Paul addressed the issues in the church. That's the type of commitment we still need today, isn't it? Some people treat the church in a superficial way, like a smorgasbord. I like that ministry. I don't like that ministry. I like that, but I don't like that. I'll come here. I won't do that. I want to be a part of what I like, but I will not embrace the entire body. That's not what the church is about. And here you see from the very onset, the very context, the the need for the first letter to Corinth are people who take this message and they say, Paul, you've got to help us. The bride's too important, the bride of Christ. The body of Christ is too important. This thing called community is too important. You got to address some issues, and there were many. Let me give you a quick list of the issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. Uh, First, there was immaturity in the Christian church of Corinth. Chapter 3, verse 1, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk not solid food, for you are not ready for solid food, and you're still not ready for solid food. Hear what Paul's saying? When I came there and you were brand new believers, I gave you milk because you weren't ready for solid food. Solid food chokes babies. But here, all these years later, you're still not ready for solid food. I still have to give you milk. And the the immaturity of that just cascaded in a lot of different things. Here at the Bible Chapel, we do not want people to stay in their immaturity. You can be a believer. You can say, I've been a believer for 35 years and still be immature. We've started this thing called Living Grounded. It's right here. There are classes we are offering on Sunday. There's a class going on right now. There's a class at 9 o'clock. There's a class at 1045. There's a class on Wednesday nights. You can do it one-on-one. You can do it one-on-few. You can do it couple with couple. However you want to do it, we'll figure out a way to get you there, to meet you at five in the morning or eight at night. You figure it out. But we believe you need to be going through this material. We've written this material. We believe it hits the essentials of the Christian faith. We've had a lot of people working on this and you need to be grounded in your Christian faith. There is no excuse for immaturity in the Christian faith. Sometimes we're going to act mature, right? Even mature people act immature. But to have the characteristic of immaturity, we just can't. Immaturity in the Corinthian church, there were divisions there as well. Chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, For one says, I follow Paul. Another says, I have followed Paulus. Are you not mere men? And are we not mere men, Paul says. Some people say, oh, I, I'm, I'm of the Apollos group. I'm of the Paul group. Others said, I'm the, of the Peter group. And they were causing divisions among them. You know, we have that issue in church today, don't we? With all the internet stuff, with all the stuff out there, people say, oh, I follow this guy. I follow this person. I follow this individual. And we say, well, wait a minute. Aren't we all following Jesus? Shouldn't we all be focused on him? Should we really be that concerned about another person. Sure, there are great teachers out there, and we need to listen to those teachers, but we don't follow those teachers. We follow the person those teachers should be holding high, Jesus Christ. 
There was immorality in the church. You can expect that. I mean, Corinth was just inundated with all this immorality. And unfortunately, instead of the church impacting the culture, the culture was impacting the church. I'm glad that doesn't happen today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's actually reported that there, are, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you're proud? Shouldn't you rather deal with it? Paul says, kick him out of the church. Use church discipline on someone like that. You can't have that in the church. This man is sleeping with his stepmother. That doesn't even happen among the pagans and you're sitting there not doing anything. You got to interact in people's lives. There was a lot of immorality in the church. Later on, in chapter 6, Paul says, flee immorality, particularly sexual immorality. Well, not all immorality, but Paul says sexual immorality is not something you do outside the body, but inside the body. Your body's involved in it. Don't do that. There were lawsuits among the believers. Look at verse 6. Chapter 6, rather, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it to the ungodly judgment instead of before the saints? You, you, you have issues with each other and you're taking it to the Corinthian courts? You're not dealing with it within the church? Look at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints were judged the world? We're going to judge the world one day. And if we're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge these trivial matters? Paul says, don't. We don't do that here. We don't sue other Christians. We get church leaders together to work that out. And if we're going to judge the world one day, don't you think we can handle some of these issues? Paul said later on, it would be better if you would be cheated. Be better if you lost something than to take it to the courts. There's abuse in the Lord's Supper. This thing that we hold so dearly in Paul's day in Corinth, they had the agape meal, the love feast, they called it, and then the uh, uh, communion at the end of that. Well, some of the wealthy people were getting together and having a little click. They were having great food. They were having a great time. But some of the poor people who actually needed to eat were not even invited. And some people were going and, and forget the love feast. Man, it was like a potluck back then. Forget the love feast. They were just enjoying the food and getting drunk before they ever took communion. There was a misunderstanding of spiritual gifts. Some people thought because they had one gift, they were superior to others. Someone got in their mind that being a Christian, if you were really a serious Christian, you abstained from sexual intimacy and marriage. That was causing some issues. And so Paul said, we don't do that here. In chapter 7, he said, uh, women, uh, uh, your body belongs to your husband, and men, your body belongs to your wife. And, and you can abstain for a while, but only make that a spiritual issue for prayer, and then come back together so that Satan won't tempt you. Look around you, Corinthians. You live in, in, in a moral society. You need to make sure your needs are met within your marriage. There is false teaching about the resurrection. So Paul had to address that. He uses about all of chapter 15 to do that. Here's what I love about, here's one of the things I love about scripture. If men wrote the Bible, 1 Corinthians would have been deleted a long time ago. 
is bad PR. Is is not showing our best uh, side. But why does God leave it in there? Because he doesn't want us to be disillusioned with some dream of some perfection of community. How does Paul respond to this issue? Got a lot of issues. He addresses every one of them individually, and he addresses them forcefully. The book is filled with theology. But there's one part of the book where Paul says, this is the most important thing you need to do. Your theology needs to be set, but unless you do this, your theology is just a bunch of head knowledge or a bunch of talk, not practice. You need to deal with that guy who's sleeping with his stepmother, but you need to do that in this way. So Paul writes a chapter in 1 Corinthians that now we call the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And I want you to know that Paul didn't write that chapter so brides would have a verse to read, a passage to read in the wedding, right? And he didn't write the chapter so um, high school uh, literature books would have some cool little poetic uh, piece to put in their books. When you're looking at a passage of scripture and you want to know what it means, you always say, how would the first readers have interpreted this? How would the first readers have accepted this? Now we can apply it to ourselves these years later, right? But how would the first readers have seen this? The first readers would have said, this is aimed right at us and the issues we're having. First Corinthians was written to a church that was what? Messy. Paul says, here's what we need to do. In the first four verses, Paul sets out uh, some hypotheticals to, to, to really demonstrate the contrast of how we live and what love is. First, he says, and well, actually the chapter 12, 13 starts at the end of chapter 12. Paul says, I want to show you a more excellent way. You guys are dropping the ball. Let me show you the most excellent way. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. Now, it's interesting because Paul may have had a little dig in this one. Um, the Corinthians loved eloquent speech, and they didn't think Paul was very eloquent. In fact, they are quoted as saying, 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, Paul said, some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So Paul says, okay, I get it. You don't think I'm a very good speaker. But even if I could speak with the tongues of men, every language known, and the tongues of angels in the most beautiful, powerful way, but not have love, it would be like going up and banging on a big gong, and there would be a big sound, but it would just vanish in the airways. It would mean nothing. If, second hypothetical, I had the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. But if I have faith, to, the third one, if I have faith to move a mountain, have not love, I gain absolutely nothing. I can have so much faith that I can say to that mountain, move, and it moves without love, forget it. If I, possess, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I'm a philanthropist, not just a philanthropist, 
But if I give everything I have to the poor where I am left with nothing but have not love, it does me absolutely no good. And if I would sacrifice my body for the Christian faith, if I would go to a martyr's death but not have love in my heart, Paul says, I gain what? Nothing. To this church in Corinth, Paul says love is not some fuzzy word. It's not some warm emotion. It's not about a hug and a handshake. It's more than just taking a meal over. Oh, that may be it. It's more than a note of encouragement, although that may be part of it. Paul says, let me tell you what love is. I want to go through these, and I want to encourage you to do one thing. 1 Corinthians 13 certainly applies to the marriage relationship. And should be applied to the marriage relationship. But first, again, going back to the way it was written, it applies to the church. So I want you to think about this in terms of your involvement in the church who you're serving with, who you're doing life group with, who you minister with. And by the way, um, like all application, when we go through these, see how it applies to you. Our first thought is, whew, I hope so-and-so hears that. Or, you know, Ron, you're talking about it. Why don't you do some of these things? But how does this apply to you? It's got to start with us. It's got to start with me. got to start with you. First, love is what? It's patient. Aren't you glad God's patient with us? I am. I would have been zapped a long time ago. (laughs) And just as God is patient with us, we need to be patient with others. We need to give people time to grow. We don't retaliate against people. Now, patience is not being indifferent. When someone's in sin, we need to address that. We'll see that in other letters. We need to be involved in each other's lives so we don't turn a blind eye. We're not indifferent. But patience says, I'm going to give you time to grow. Now, I don't understand why you're not serving yet, but I'm going to give you time to grow. I'm going to challenge you to do it and give you time to grow. I don't know why you're not applying this truth in your life yet, but I'm going to give you time to grow. And all of us need time to grow. I don't know why, but there are people who will come and they will sit here for five, six years and do nothing. And then, and then for some reason, God sparks it in their mind, in their heart, to get involved in something. And they get involved great guns. They go at it significantly. I don't know why it takes so long, but I know this. In the church, we need to be patient with each other. Secondly, love is kind. Patience is, um, is kind of event-driven. Something happens to me, and I get to choose, am I going to respond in patience? Kindness refers to the normal manner in which we treat people. And by the way, kindness, again, does not mean we turn a blind eye to people living dangerously in sin. You wouldn't say parents are kind if you saw their kids playing out in the middle of a busy street, would you? Well, if believers, if we as a church... We see our fellow brothers and sisters playing out in the dangerous street of sin. It's not kindness to just say, well, that's them. I don't want to get involved. Kindness gets involved. Love does not envy. You can admire another person for who they are. You can admire them for what they have. You can desire the same things they have. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Aspire to, to walk with Christ like I do. Boy, that's a, that's a great statement. Parents, don't you wish you could say that to your kids? But jealousy and envy comes when 
admiration and desire turn into resentment and anger and bitterness and gossip. Paul says, we don't do that here. Love does not boast. Some people have to always tell you who they were or who they are, what they made or what they make, the position they had or the position they have now. Uh, One uh, commentary describes this unloving trait as being a braggart or a windbag. This person always has to correct you, always has to have the most information, always has to have the last word. Paul says, "We we don't do that here. Love is not proud. Scripture says we think more highly of others than ourselves. Now, certainly we have, we have needs, and we need to meet those needs in our life. But, but, but pride says we're going to think of others more highly than us. Pride is, uh, is being overly self-confident, is always being right. So, you know, people are always right. If you always have to be right. That's a problem. By the way, when's the last time you said to someone, I'm sorry? If you can't think of a time when you did that, there's a problem. Because you are not perfect. And you said something or did something along the way to someone. And if you're unwilling to say, I'm sorry, that's a problem of pride. Love is not rude. Rudeness is a disregard for social customs that others have adopted. It shows disrespect. I'm going to say something here. I have no one in mind. I honestly don't. You may have had a bad day today, and this might apply to you. I'm not trying to pile on, and I'm not talking to first-time people, or if you've been here, just coming for a little bit. I'm talking to the... Members of our, just members of the Bible Chapel, all right? Our services start at 9 and 1045. (laughs) And when you are late, that is being rude. It's a distraction to other people trying to worship the living God. Worship here is not a preliminary to the preaching. It goes down after this worship here. The preaching does. You need to be on time. I guarantee you, you go into a Pirates game or a Steelers game, you get there in time. You don't want to miss the kickoff. Why are we so, who cares about being on time to worship God? If some of you showed the same types of characteristics in your job, you would be fired. Fellowship in the lobby or in your ABF class, is no excuse for being late. Okay, have I beat that hard enough? (laughs) Love is not self-seeking. It doesn't always have to be at the head of the line. It doesn't always have to have your face on the cover. It puts the benefits of others over personal needs. Again, not sacrificing your family to minister to others but always demonstrating the fact that you are willing to go the extra mile for another person. It generously gives so others can be ministered to. 
Love is not easily angered. Certainly there are times when anger is appropriate. Jesus got a little irritated when he went into the temple, right? Paul got irritated. He is angered when he went into Athens in Acts chapter 17 and saw a city full of idols that angered him. God wasn't being worshipped. But let's face it, there are some people who are wound so tightly that uh, they get mad real quick. The Phillips translation says, love is not touchy. If you look a wrong way at a person, they're not mad at you. Someone said after the service regarding this one, Paul left one thing out. He needed to say, we all need a little sense of humor. (laughs) You don't have to take things so seriously. So when you take yourself so seriously, then anything someone says to you so seriously, you're going to be hurt a lot. You're going to live in, in perpetual frustration. Someone else may be having a bad day too. So we need to not be easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't carry a bag around saying, you hurt me this time, you hurt me this time, you hurt me this time. You haven't hurt me in a year and a half, but I still have my bag. Oh, you hurt me. You always do that. Maybe that person's growing a little bit. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Do you like juicy gossip? Story of a marriage in trouble? The story of a fall, secretly enjoying another person's demise. Paul says, we don't, we don't do that here. Love always protects. Love says, I've got your back. I'm going to watch out for you. Love always trusts. Love, that means love always gives the benefit of the doubt. Can you believe this person said that? You know what? That would be uncharacteristic of them because I don't know them like that. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's go talk to them. We'll talk about how that process works in a couple weeks. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. You know, someone has said, and sometimes rightly so, that the church is the only place that shoots its wounded. It's a hard statement, isn't it? And sometimes when someone falls, we're judgmental, write them off, can you believe it, spread the word, and don't stand beside them and protect them. See, love always hope says, I'm never going to give up on you. Now, discipline may be involved in it. Paul had said in chapter 5, get that guy out of the church, but not because we're going to give up on him, because he needs to see what it's like outside the body of Christ. It's a dangerous place to be. You don't want to be there. It's for restoration. Church discipline is always for restoration. But never gives up on a person. Love always perseveres. Love's going to stick with you no matter what. Love's going to stay there. Love isn't going to leave because someone looked at you cross-eyed in the lobby because you didn't get your need met. See, the community's deeper than that. 
it's not a, it's not a smorgasbord. It's not a place just to come and sing some songs and get in the car. Communities where you invest yourself and you don't walk out of your family, do you? I hope you don't. You shouldn't. Neither does Christ want you walking out of the body of Christ. Are there reasons to leave a church? Yes, there are. We'll talk about those as we go through this series. But some people leave for the wrong reasons. And that old country song says, wherever you go, there you are. You can run from yourself, but you won't get far. And so if you leave here, please leave in a healthy way. Because if you don't, you'll take that same attitude and irritations that you left here with to another body of Christ. And we don't want that to happen. If you're going to leave here, leave in a way that says, okay, I've talked to everyone. I've shared my issues. I'm feeling, I've done everything I can. And I'm going to go to another church in a fresh way. I'm not going to take that stuff with me. We would prefer that because we're a family, we can work it out. But we've got to be realistic as well. Love never fails. Love is beyond, is involved in something beyond the ordinary. It's supernatural. It never fails. Where there are prophecies, verse 8, they're going to fail. Where there are uh, tongues are going to cease. They're going to be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it's going to pass away. For now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. What's the, what's the perfection coming? When's that going to happen? Christ returns. That's the only time perfection is going to come. When I was a child, Paul says, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. That's when I was immature. But when I started growing in maturity, when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection in a mirror. Uh, Corinth was known for its bronze mirrors. They polished them up and and people would buy the mirrors from Corinth and, 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 and check themselves out. Paul says, even those great mirrors that you guys have here in Corinth, it's still, a, it's still a kind of a poor reflection, but one day we're going to see Christ face to face. And then, now I know in part, but then I'm going to be fully known, even as I am fully known. And now these thing, three things remain. What are they? Faith, hope, and what? And the greatest, the trump card, the greatest of those is always love. Good theology? Absolutely. Living grounded? You need to. Growing in a walk with Christ? Yes. But it's all for naught if we don't have this agape love that always hopes, always perseveres, and never fails. The church, let's just say it, is a messy place. It's made up of saved sinners in all stages of their Christian walk. No one person has reached perfection, which makes us an imperfect body of believers. By the way, if you find a perfect church, do not join it. You'll mess it up. We're all, all of us are working through our stuff. All of us have some bad days. 
All of us have some baggage from the past. All of us have some brokenness. All of us, we know the word acronym SAFE, right? Significant, secure, accepted, forgiven, empowered. We get that identity in Christ. We're just trying to figure out what that looks like inside. We know we're filled with the Spirit. Every day we're trying to work to allow the Spirit to control more of our life. Every one of us is a work in progress. Not just you, but the person sitting next to you. Give them a break. Not just you, but some of us collectively in our leadership. Not going to do everything right. Not just leadership, but life groups. You're not going to do everything right. We protect each other. We never give up on each other. We always give each other the benefit of the doubt. We don't stick our head in the sand and not deal with issues. And there are issues to deal with. But we do it in love. Or should. We're all working to allow the Spirit to control our lives. And that's why the love of Christ... By the way, the, the, the love we're talking about in 1 Corinthians, this is not high school literature textbook love. The only way this love can ever work is because Jesus Christ has, has ripped you out of hell itself, transformed your life. This is supernatural stuff. And that's why we have to deal with jealousy and pride. And if you've got some of that going on, you need to deal with it. That's why we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. If you've written someone off, you need to go to them and say, you know what? I wrote you off. Forgive me. I got your back. That's why you can't avoid a person here when you walk down a hallway. That's why you can't be so touchy or easily angered because there will always be something to be mad about. That doesn't mean we don't call someone out when they're in sin. That's part of love. But it does mean that we do it in a 1 Corinthians 13 manner. We don't give up on people. We don't write them off because they're part of the family. God will never give up on his church. Remember, the gates of hell will never break it down. And it only breaks down when we live in some dream world. And don't get down into the nitty-gritty, down-and-dirty application of 1 Corinthians 13, love. So, Father, we need your help. we got a lot of things to do here. We believe you're calling us to do a lot of things, but we, we also know that uh, we're the ones who can mess that up. We all got stuff going on in our lives. So far from perfect, we can hardly spell the word. We need you to to strengthen us and help us. We need you to be the one who convicts us when we step out of line and, and, and gives us enough humility to go to a person and deal with it so that the anger doesn't build, so the baggage doesn't stay packed. We need you to help us realize that although we come from brokenness, we don't have to stay in our brokenness. Although we have sinned in the past, we don't have to do that tomorrow. We need you.
Father, we're gonna sing our prayer. We're gonna sing our prayer. We need you, oh, we need you. And we pray, Lord, that, that as we sing this, this would be that this would be not just a song we sing to end the service, but this would be the cry of desperate hearts, letting you know that without you, we can't do anything worthwhile with you. With you, we can make an impact in this body called the church. Be with us as we sing in Christ's name.